And now let's take one of those time crystals we heard about from earlier in the science show and zip back to 1984. I'm under one of those huge arches at the park by Golden Gate Bridge, about to meet Frank Oppenheimer. Yes, he's in the film as well. But it's also instructive to see how his strong sense of civic duty led him to invent the modern science centre, attracting youth who otherwise would probably be feral, out of control in rough streets. He helped to make them explainers by offering them guitars to play and then science to enjoy. He also used a much cheaper venue and kit to bring science and art to the people. No billion-dollar edifice required. And if you're a bit bamboozled by the funky music, be aware. This was five years before Taylor Swift was born. Dr Frank Oppenheimer is a remarkable scientist. He did his early work on cosmic rays and how they affect the Earth's magnetic field. Then he joined his brother, Robert Oppenheimer, at Los Alamos to work on the atomic bomb. After the war, Frank went to Berkeley to join the team operating the largest accelerator in the world to study subatomic matter. He and Luis Alvarez and Panofsky designed the world's first powerful proton linear accelerator. At that point, around 1947, things went wrong. Ernest Lawrence sacked Oppenheimer from Berkeley. He became a professor of physics at Minnesota. Two years later, because of his anti-war activity and membership of the Communist Party, Dr Frank Oppenheimer lost even that academic post. He became a farmer. It seemed that his life as a scientist was at an end. But it wasn't at an end. After years in the wilderness, Dr Frank Oppenheimer invented the Exploratorium, one of the world's most exciting museums, science centres, call it what you will. There it is in San Francisco, not far from Golden Gate Bridge, in a gigantic building that looks at first like a relic from ancient Greece, with its statues of semi-naked figures and fluted columns of stone. Inside, the contrast is incredible. No hushed processions of neat young students here. There's space to rush about and a built-in informality that keeps excited youngsters and older folk involved in everything they explore. The basis of the exhibits is perception, seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling, touching, but in a way that knows no scientific boundaries. So let's go on a sprint around the place and get a glimpse of what's on show and hear something about the philosophy of those who run the Exploratorium of San Francisco. Now I'm standing up at the workshop end of the Exploratorium. It's right where the main entrance is. And your name is Jad? Jad King. I'm the art director. I'm going to try to walk from one end to the other and give a picture of just one floor. Here's the workshop where most of the material is built. Yeah, all the exhibits are first prototyped here and then constructed. Here we move them out here where we can watch people, see if they work, if they don't work, people understand what buttons to push. And gives a chance to people that constructed and to see how they're holding up. Often things will be on the floor only a few hours before something will break and we'll have to take it back and make that part of it stronger. Over here also includes a cinema and we're walking past a video machine and upstairs are optical displays and we're coming towards a mirror 
with an aurora, it's called. What's this? It was designed by one of our artists in residence. He got the idea by sitting in a bar, and the back of the bar had polished steel. And the steel, is, as you can see here, it's curved above the colored lights. So you, you have these bands of light, and you can sit here and mix them and just make different patterns with it. And further on, something like a whirlpool, it looks as if one can... Yes, a child is, is lifting a lever. A spiral of water? You can just adjust the speed the water comes out the top, and so it creates this vortex in the center. It's quite beautiful. It's another artist in residence piece here. When we're going past a dozen different exhibits with oscilloscopes, video cameras, here's something quite spectacular, a display of a wheel-like strobe in blue and red, changing color dramatically, changing shape. It tries to simulate motion. There's actually nothing spinning, but by the way that the lights are controlled, it looks as if these bars are spinning around. The person sitting here can control the number, the speed, the direction. Funny noises coming from over here. Let's try to follow them. This is heartbeat. Hold your head still. Grasp it. That's your heartbeat. That's your heart. I, I can see it. And onwards. Is this the 7 o'clock news or something? No, it's, it's an Australian science program. Oh. What's here? This is the biology department mostly dealing with nerve reaction and perception as it ties into human perception, which is sort of an underlying theme of the museum. And I'm looking at about 30 different machines, exhibits, games, noises. There's a waterfall, there's a tank, there's a huge starfish, and there's an electric fish. We can hear things go click, click. Jad just pressed the tank, which, which is why the fish, I suppose, got angry or anxious and well, made... They emit a signal that helps them orient themselves, and if there's some disturbance, they send it out more so they can check out what's going on. They live in muddy waters, so they usually can't see. We've hardly covered any territory at all, actually. There's uh, holography. Is this holography? This whole section here deals with optical illusion and mostly tricking your eye. As we move on, it's useful to remind that we're in something like a gigantic plane hangar. A hangar for a bent blimp. At least five jumbos in here, couldn't you? Yes. This is, as I remember when my own children were here, an extraordinarily popular place where, apart from anything else, one has domes with even electric guitars. Can we stand in the middle here at the end of an echo tube? Extremely long. What happens? The higher frequencies re get returned, the lower ones get lost up there, and so it sounds like a bullet ricochet. You can also yell in it, and kids like, make nice noises. Yes, it does. And the tube is something like 30 meters long, going right up to the roof. And so to Dr. Frank Oppenheimer himself. Rather frail, he uses a walking stick but his enthusiasm is unlimited. I saw him in his office, situated in the very middle of the exhibition area. His assistants are young, talented, and think he's terrific. This building was designed for the 1915 Panama Pacific Exposition. And at that time, it was for the arts. That's why it's called the Palace of Fine Arts. The roof was entirely skylights and then muslin was stretched across and it was divided up into little cubicles in which the paintings and sculpture were displayed. How did you actually acquire it? Because it must have cost a fortune being in this place and of that quality. 
it had fallen apart, and in the early 60s, the citizenry raised a little over $8 million to reconstruct it. And this romance, together with the kind of airplane hangar quality of the interior, seemed an ideal place for a science museum. I wanted it not just to be a preserver of artifacts, but actually teach about nature. What we did here reflected my earlier experience with teaching. Didn't you have some problems, even though it was in the late 60s, from the sort of aftermath of your personal experience with the McCarthyite era? Wasn't there still some prejudice against you? There probably was, but I'm not good at noticing whether it's prejudice or bureaucracy or people just not liking what I say. So I don't know to what extent my radical politics had any effect or not. It probably did, but it didn't seem to really interfere. Well, then when you were set up and you had a few exhibits, how really did it take off? Because now it's a world-famous success. I didn't think about being a world famous success in the beginning. I did want it to be a place that had the respect of the academic community. I felt that many science museums had kind of trivial science, which was of interest to too narrow an audience. And that didn't seem good enough, that one should really have it a very versatile place that would appeal to all ages and all professions. And I think it has turned out into that. And that may be why it has gotten to be so well known, because it has a lot of depth to it. The role of perception, which is an extremely interesting subject and is a young science, but kind of the basis of all our learning, whether it's about science or history, that turns out to be a very good starting point. And it also allows one very naturally to move both in the direction of physics and biology and of sculpture mostly. Yes, that, that, that connection with art is one that I think would come as a surprise to many fairly straight science people. Have you had difficulty getting this connection established clearly between the science and the art? We don't tell people this is art and this is science. We have both of them here, but I think the fact that artists have made many of the pieces that are here has a big effect on the way people appreciate the world. For me, having looked at paintings much of my life, I see the world differently and more interestingly than if I had not looked at paintings, whether it's the brush strokes of Van Gogh or the shape of a mountain of Cezanne or the conglomerate of things of Chagall. I see the world differently and think of it differently and probably act differently because of what artists have discovered about the world and communicated. And so since artists are making discoveries, that have to do more with human feelings and reaction to the world than perhaps scientists do in what they communicate anyway. I think the two have to go together if one's really going to learn what the world is like. And art, I believe, is treated too trivially. People are not willing to say that art can affect people enough to change their politics, their habits, their mores. They're scared of that, so they say art is for art's sake. And I think it's done a great deal of injustice to the role of art, but mostly it's deprived citizenry of the kind of learning they can get from the arts. And so I think one should combine the two. Of course, it's no coincidence that at the turn of the century with the revolution in physics, where the world seemed rather uncertain now that the atom and atomic theory was there, and Einstein, for that matter, with theories of relativity, at the same time you had the revolution in art with the Cubists, Picasso, and many of the ones you mentioned. I think that's right. There is a forefront to art, and that work has continued, and our early shows here were on that forefront. One of the 
first major shows that we had, which we borrowed, uh, we're going to keep six weeks, but kept for 18 months, was a show called Cybernetic Serendipity. It had been put together by the Institute for Contemporary Arts in London, and people were very nice to us and helped us get. But also at that time, there was a group which called itself Experiments in Art and Technology, and many of the local artists were working with that, using light and polarization and motion in their sculptures. So we had a show of their work along with that. And both of these have left a residue of pieces that we still have. But we had also at the same time in this great hall, we had concerts. And this building is a thousand feet long and it was empty at the time. And the echoes took about two seconds to get back and forth. And the music was really quite interesting. And one musician wrote a piece specifically for the acoustics of this. And it was an interesting effort. May I listen? Oh yeah, sure. It says a voice trombone. Yeah. Talk into the tube with your mouth against your hand, as shown in the drawing, and you move the piston. I ah, see so you, you change your voice like the trombone changes its sound. Is that right? Yeah, I guess. You do it. Can you can you do it without laughing? <laughs> what do you think it teaches you? I think it teaches you um, the levels in your voice, how it can go down and raise up. Could you describe what you're doing? No. <laughs> Playing with little knobs. Playing with little knobs? Yeah. <laughs> you know why the sounds change? No, because you're turning little knobs. <laughs> I'm standing here on the, a top part of the Exploratorium looking down on crowds and crowds of young people. Standing next to me is someone who's been the assistant director for a, quite a time. Sally, you've been here 10 years, is it? Yes, that's correct. What brought you here in the first place? Well, I was an out-of-work teacher. I got hired, luckily, by this place as a part-time explainer and teaching assistant for a new program we were starting in the Exploratorium. And now that I've been here 10 years, I agree with a co-worker that this is teacher heaven. Yes, I can imagine, Sally, that some people some very conservative people would say, yes, this is an elaborate fun parlour with lots of machines where kids can play, and they'd need to be convinced that this is learning, mm -hmm. that it's not just a quick game and when you finish with it, on to the next thing. Well, it's a disturbing point because it's a very limited look at what learning is all about. There's one type of learning that you get from books, and it's very valuable and you can't duplicate it in an exhibit. There's a type of learning where you have to do something over and over, build up a skill like riding a bicycle, like learning a mathematical problem, whatever, where it takes patience and time. There's another type of learning where you are fiddling around and quite in a fairly informal way, you come up with noticing things for yourself. Somebody isn't telling you, look here, look here, look here, know this, know this, know this, but it's you're getting it yourself. You can come here on a weekend, or like today, you can see the kids moving around quite freely and just wander aimlessly as if like you were going through a woods. But you can also come here and use this place in a very systematic way. And that's what we feel is one of the key points here is that this can be used in both formal ways and informal ways. We have teachers come here for programs to see how the exhibits can be used by them and their students in a very structured way, as well as just coming here on a field trip and just running around. 
we have enough in any area that we develop so that you can get a very good understanding of any topic. So for example, we have a large section on mirrors, but we don't just have like one flat mirror that shows you one thing and a curved mirror that shows you something else, but we show you a lot of different multiple reflections with flat mirrors and concave mirrors and how they make real images in space, convex mirrors and how they do something totally different than concave, so that you can build up a comprehensive understanding of what's going on and you can't do that just by one or two examples but that's like any good curriculum you need a lot of good examples to be able to flesh it out what I've been seeing in a lot of different science museums which I find unfortunate is that they focus just on the fun which is here and don't think about what it is that they're trying to teach for us it has to be both and that takes a lot of work yes it certainly does but what do you feel about that in phrase these days the hands-on exhibit <laughs> that is totally meaningless Anything you touch is hands-on. So, I mean, this microphone you're holding is a hands-on exhibit now. But I think what most people mean is that you have to be active. You have to be an active learner. It's not just somebody lecturing to you, this is what's right and these are the facts, but that you make your own discoveries by fiddling around with something. The process of discovery in that way is just as important as what you discover. The process of noticing what's going on. Hey, I see something different than you, and comparing, well now wait a minute, what's going on over there? You know, why do we see it differently? That's just as scientific as this is the way the retina works. Both are important, but usually in a lot of the schools you get just the right answers because it's easier to teach that way, and in a setting like this you can do it both ways. Honey black is a slow, dusty, but dried sugar. He hunted too for deep boring grubs under the bark of the trees. Am I asking what you're doing? She's found variables here. So there's a tape running and it goes faster or slower. Back here it could kill thrice in a night and hardly get a full meal. But the want of water was the worst. And the heat went on and on and sucked up all the moisture until at last the main getting faster. was the only stream that carried a trickle of water between its apex. And then Hattie, the wild elephant who lived around the earth saw a long, lean, blue ridge of rock. Well, we have two different programs. The one that you're seeing now are older people. They're in their mid-20s, usually college-age people, who are doing demonstrations, working with teachers, and just explain exhibits to the kids. The other explainer program we have that a lot of people have tried to copy or take parts of and use as a model is with high school students, where we hire students that are not necessarily whiz kids in science, but they're curious, articulate, work well in groups, they're paid minimum wage. It's not a volunteer program because we wanted to get kids who we knew wouldn't volunteer, they couldn't afford it or whatever. So we're reaching a lot of kids that normally would not take a science course or not go very far with it. And we train them in how to operate all the exhibits and then give them on-the-job instruction to the concepts behind all of the exhibits. So not only are we teaching them, but then they teach the public. And so then they learn what they don't know as they're opening their mouth to explain an exhibit and realize, wait a minute, I didn't quite get that right. I thought I understood it. I mean, like any teacher or anybody who's done teaching knows that once when you start to teach, you understand how much you don't understand about a topic. So they learn a lot about science, but they also teach a lot. And it's, it's really a nice double education program. We're starting now to do an evaluation of what's happened to these kids. We've done this program for 10 years, so there's been over a thousand explainers through it. And so we want to find out, well, how have their attitudes changed? It's not that we want them to go out and be physicists, but it's more an attitudinal thing. Do they feel more comfortable with science? Do they feel like they could understand more about science? And 
I'll just throw in right here that one of the main points of this whole museum is not that people walk away from here understanding anything more about the laws of reflection or refraction, but it's more that they feel like they can understand that science isn't this aloof thing that they have no contact with, but there is a way, if they work at it, that they can really become familiar with the concepts of science and are interested in the processes and it's not something that's remote. That's why you don't see the monuments here that you see in a lot of technology museums where the focus was not putting out the technology first, the focus was more the phenomena so that you could then be concerned more with the technology. Once you just focus on technology, it adds this kind of remoteness, like isn't someone else clever, someone else wonderful, which then makes me at least feel even more removed from what's going on. You know, oh, I'll never do it, I'll never understand it kind of feeling. You're making a very big noise, aren't you? wheel going round. It says light receiving bars, photocells, connected to an oscilloscope. Ah, you can see the shape of the sound that you're producing. Right. And, and if you put it, put it like this one, these uh, little ones, that they go, they go ee, and they make that thing go toing. And the graph changes? Yeah. Do you know why? Because the sound <laughs> makes it jump. It, it hits the atmosphere, I think, in the speaker. And then I think one of those, that wheel hits one of those electrodes and it makes one of those bounce because it's, it's all depending on sound. I, I see. Your friend was laughing inadvisedly because you do know the answer, don't you? Yeah, I do. You've been here before? Uh, yeah, I've been here about six or seven times. It's pretty neat, yeah. It is neat, isn't it? It's a good experience to me, yeah. Is it better than most other museums you've come across? Yes, it, it is. Program there. Woo! All right. I know from some exclamations that they really like the aesthetics of the place. They call to each other and they say, come and look at this, it's so beautiful. They dance in front of the shadow wall, listen to the music, they play the music in the two music rooms we have. Although they flitter around a lot, they seem to also settle down in certain flowers here and extract the honey from them. So people can build their own intuition by interacting with these things. Almost all the exhibits one can interact with in a fairly obvious way. We have signs that say to do a notice to help people along, and we also have ones explaining what's going on. But it seemed to me terribly important that one be able to change things a little bit if one's going to learn anything and find out, as kids do with their parents, test the limits so that the exhibits are very versatile. Each exhibit can be used in many different ways, and often the visitors use them in a way that doesn't teach them anything that we thought they were going to learn, but they nevertheless get involved with it. But I think if you're going to get people to explore, 
you have to be satisfied with the fact that they discover things that they want to discover and not necessarily the things that you thought they should discover. So there are things here which will delight the physicists and the biologists because of their sophistication and which at the same time can appeal to a non-scientifically educated audience. Dr. Frank Oppenheimer, who's director of the Exploratorium. His assistant director, Sally Duensing, still high above the crowds in the body of the huge hall, told me how much they'd seen their influence spread throughout the world, including to Australia. We've had great contacts with Australia. We've had one of the nicest times we've had recently is with Michael Gore from the Questacon Museum. For me, one of the ideal uses of this place is when people come and study what we're doing and then take it to realms that we'd never thought of. And that's what Michael did. He came here, I believe, in 73 or 74, got some interesting exhibit ideas, and then took it back to Canberra and then through photographs has shown us how he's extended our exhibit ideas in very intriguing ways. And we'd like to use some of his ideas, actually. And I hope there's a couple in particular that I really want to get out on the floor here that we hadn't thought of before. And to us, that keeps the museum community rich and alive. We've also had some very nice discussions with people from the Sydney Museum. And the thing I see happening in Australia that I've been seeing happen in India and in France and in England and a lot of countries all over the world is that there's this real hunger to present science in an interesting way, that it's not glossing over or sugarcoating science, but it's showing that science isn't just this static way of looking at something, that it is a very involving process. And I guess people all over the world are seeing how the public is also demanding another way. Frank Oppenheimer at the Exploratorium. And yes, see him in the movie. An alternative way to bring science and ideas to the people, not costing billions. Mm -hmm.